0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you from Macquarie University. I am here today with Trevor Thompson, who is a journalist with a passion for football history and a long history uh, himself of reporting on football-related subjects. And we're here to talk about his book, Playing for Australia, The First Roos Asia, and World Football, which came out in 2018 with Fair Play Publishing. Thanks for joining us,
1: Trevor. Pleasure to be here, Keith. Uh,
0: I have to tell you, I I love this book. Um, Ever since I moved to Australia, I've I've wanted to know more about uh, the Socceroos and and thinking about the origins of football in Australia. And this book cleared up a lot of things for me. Um, So I'd like to start out by asking you how you
1: developed this project. Well, uh, I share your interest in this, uh, in this area of Australia's uh, football history. Uh, there used to be a, an old adage that if you go looking for a book that you can't find, that probably the one that you have to write. I couldn't really find very much about this early period, particularly in the international game. The fact that Australia went on tours to Asia as early as the 1920s, the fact that we played against teams from China, uh, I thought that was amazing and I wanted to know more about it, but it's it's kind of a, uh, a forgotten part of the history. I did write an earlier book, which is a more general history of the game in Australia, and so I didn't really have a chance to explore these early connections with Asia particularly, uh, and so it was always in my mind that I wanted to go back to this and see how much more I could find, and I, I still think I've really only uh, scraped the surface in many ways. There's a lot of, uh, well, there's there's a lot of contact and uh, cultural context both in Australia and in Asia which uh, govern the way that we might think about these subjects and it's kind of clouded in some ways by uh, Australia's rather dismissive attitude to historical issues generally in my opinion. Uh, But on the Asian side of things, it's often complicated by the politics of colonial and post-colonial societies about what is important to remember. Is this part of a kind of uh, colonial experience that we shouldn't really be all that interested in? Is it part of a a broader struggle for national identities of which, uh, you know, bigger political issues obviously gain the attention? But sporting identity questions are sort of in there as well. I I have to admit, just from the title alone, I thought this would be a book um
0: almost entirely about australia and i was very pleasantly surprised to find a lot of infectation history i i, I do think the main drive of the book if I, i'm if i if i could say is about this kind of rewriting of an anglo history of australian football is that kind of what you set out to do
1: that's a, a big part of what I set out to do. I think, so far as you can say that there is a commonly understood narrative about football in Australia at all, uh, it's that it, Australia is a kind of underachieving tail end of uh, British Empire football, uh, which doesn't really uh, succeed. You know, one of the one of the common questions. Uh, that I often used to feel in my days as a uh, week-in, week-out football reporter from people who are not as familiar with the game as maybe I am. But they would ask me, so why is it that historically Australia's football scene hasn't developed in the way that it did in other countries Uh, when it had all of this connection with Britain, which was the homeland of football? Um, Well, I've eventually come round to the view that that connection with the homeland of football was actually a very serious uh, impediment to the development of uh, football in Australia. It's an experience that we share, after all, with New Zealand, with South Africa, with Canada, with India, which have all uh, been countries that have been slow to reach a more mature position on the international stage. So the kind of cultural fealty to Britain uh, Obscured other opportunities which arose as the years went by, and uh, has been a, you know, a serious detriment to the development of Australia's uh, football life. So it's not just well, I, I can't say I can't say that uh, the the narrative which says Australia was a relatively unsuccessful uh, tail end of the, of a British uh, system is entirely wrong. I think there's truth in it. Um, but it goes nowhere near telling a fuller story about a very multicultural and internationalist uh, agenda and experience that Australia did uh, participate in in a fairly significant way in the 1920s and 1930s particularly.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that that came through, I think, very clearly. I, I, I share your, your um, experience in some ways where I often... Uh, teaching a unit on on uh football in Australia have to answer the question, well, why did football not you know global soccer maybe i i would call it uh, not become more popular in australia a- and i'm all, and I'm struck by this this um this question and I'm often pointing to other literature where people can see that oh in fact there's a long history of of, of soccer in australia but but your book is the first word I've ever read. Uh, that centers around this kind of uh, question of of failed ambitions and missed opportunities, not just within Australia, but in this broader regional context. And Is that when you were writing, when you were writing this, did you just time and time again, like slap yourself on the head? How could they have done this? Why did they do this? Because that's kind of what I was feeling when I was reading the book. I was like, oh, my gosh.
1: Well, you know, of course, we have the great advantage of being uh, able to view this in retrospect, and that makes it pretty easy to be an expert in retrospect. But, yeah, <laughs> it's um, <coughs> it is something which does have you uh, wondering. Yeah, you know, it's just to take it back to that period. Uh, you know, there are two bodies who see themselves as being the international organisations. Uh, uh, governing football in the world, the Football Association. We think of it as the English FA. It's, its name is actually just the Football Association. They didn't see think there'd be any other need to have another football association, so it's simply uh, you know, the FA. Um, they invented the rules. They uh, you know promulgated the game around the world, sorta. Of, um, but they they claimed a territory. Uh, in the same way that Britain claimed an empire. They identified territories as being theirs and uh, culturally Australia is a you know, very, very British society uh, and to gainsay uh, the authority of the FA or any kind of expertise emanating from London is is difficult uh, and they found it really a, a struggle Uh The FA really did very little uh, to enhance the game in Australia. Uh, Those who know the history might be um, swearing at me already because they can point at the donation of a a national trophy for a national championship. That was done. It was uh, not a cheap affair. It was a couple of hundred pounds of uh, silverware that was sent to Australia. An English professional team toured here in 1925 and an amateur team came here in 1937. Uh, there were other grants of money, of 500 pounds, I think it was, in the early 30s. You know, it's not as if there was nothing happening, but in terms of, but this, this was always done according to what the FA decided we should do, rather than in response to the many requests that Australia sent to London about what Australia thought should happen. Uh, Australia's opinion didn't really matter that much, so it kind of got brushed aside. The 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 pinnacle that um, Australia aspired to within the uh, FA system is to go on a tour to take the Australian team to England to play against English teams and that could be the catalyst both for the development of their players, the development of a profile uh, back home in Australia about mixing it with the big boys um, and also as part of a broader international worldwide tour uh, that was that was all part of the ambition, but it kept getting knocked back. Even the 1925 tour to Australia, that was at the end of a, uh, a begging program, if you like, um, of 40 years' duration. It took 40 years before England sent a team to Australia. This is when other sports like rugby and cricket, it, it's, a, it's almost a, you know, a biannual event. So Australia was a backwater because of the failure already with that relationship with England. The pinnacle really of, well, the nadir, I suppose I should describe it as, is in 1934, uh, England finally did accede to the request, say, yeah, you can come. This is how many games. This is when you should come. Uh, This is the time of the year. And they were ecstatic about it. And then nothing kind, nothing much happened. And then the FA postponed the proposal for that tour for 12 months. They said, it's not the best time. And we want to make sure this tour is a success. So if you don't mind, 12 months delay. Australia was in no position to say anything else, really. So they said yes. Um, But 12 months later, the tour was cancelled. So Australia never got to make that tour. They put all of their eggs in this one basket uh, and and it just didn't produce anything at all. On the other hand, the other body that was looking to establish its uh, authority in the international game was FIFA created in 1904, rapidly expanded, of course, in Europe, uh, and th- to some extent uh, extending to Asia because of uh, colonial relationships, Spain and uh, Philippines, for instance, although that uh, quickly diminished when the uh, after the um, uh, American ascendancy in the Philippines. Uh, but the Dutch relationship with the uh, East Indies is very interesting. The Dutch and the East Indies had a far, far more uh, productive relationship than Australia ever had with England. It's an interesting comparison, uh, which is not to suggest, of course, (laughs) excuse me, that uh, the East Indies were not without problems. They had many, but this was not one of them. So Australia was, for a time, uh, a member of FIFA. Australia applied for membership of FIFA in uh, 1924, uh, but then that – uh, application did not proceed because we were folded in with the English FA uh, as members of the FA. We already members of the FA. Uh, the FA joined FIFA in 24, and uh, by that action, Australia also became a member. That's fine. It, it's it saved 50 bucks a year. 50 American dollars was the membership fee for FIFA in those days. Uh, so that uh, that saved a little bit of cash. But in 1928, when there was a major dispute about uh, amateurism, broken time payments, uh, who should and should not be eligible to play at the Olympics, bear in mind this is before the World Cup ever starts in 1930, so the Olympic Games is is effectively the World Championship. Um, Big dispute, high dudgeon in London. Uh, We can't have these uh, FIFA-inspired acceptance of what they saw as a degree of professionalism, that is to say compensation payments for players who had to leave work in order to play, um, this couldn't happen. They withdrew from FIFA, and as a result, Australia also withdrew from FIFA. This was a disaster in the longer term. It meant that Australia was not uh, even invited to participate in the 1930 World Cup, the first one in Uruguay, a tournament, by the way, where Uruguay undertook to pay the travel and accommodation of all of the teams that went there, uh, nor were we eligible for the 1934 and 1938 World Cups. Uh, and correspondence that I have seen in the FIFA archive in Zurich shows that FIFA were keeping a space open for an Asian representative of both of those tournaments uh, and we're also offering to pay travel and accommodation for teams that went there uh, to, to participate in the finals. That's not to say that it would necessarily have ex- uh, been extended to Australia, but the offer was on the table, uh, and Australia just didn't even know the offer was there. So we were excluded from the most significant development in world football uh, directly as a result of our. Uh, cultural fealty to uh, English ideas.
0: The FA definitely comes in as a as a major um, impediment to the development of international football in Australia. Almost, almost, uh, almost as as if uh, they were a kind of bad guy. Especially once Stanley Rous uh, enters into the into the equation. I, I wondered, though, in reading it. Um, you know, if if a major part of it wasn't that also Australian organizers were too Anglophile or, or just were kind of English, many times it, literally English themselves, right? Yes, <laughs> they'd that's come right. To Australia. At, at times <laughs> I mean, they it's, couldn't even imagine something else. <laughs> as I mis- say, the,
1: the the ability to contradict or uh, be at odds with uh, uh, English football opinion was was really really difficult. Uh, and as you say, many of the people involved in the decision making uh, are English themselves. It's it's really hard to uh, uh, exaggerate um, just how how British Australia before the Second World War is. You know, even when we talk about um, you know, Anzac traditions and the First World War and all of that, um, you know, something like twenty five percent of the uh, Anzac soldiers were 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 British immigrants. Uh, it's it's that heavily ingrained, uh, and for a identifiably British sport, which in an Australian newspaper, you might actually see the articles written in the paper are under the general heading British Association. It's already identified as British. It's much more British than any other sport in Australia. Uh, the idea that we could be uh taking a different view is uh, not one that was really going to gain much of uh, of an ascendancy. And the first obvious example of that is when an English team comes to Australia in 1925 under the leadership of what is arguably at that time the most uh, experienced football administrator in the world, in John Lewis. John Lewis is uh, is the team manager for England. He doesn't like Australia. He doesn't like much about Australia or the Australians that he meets. And uh, it's clear that he's uh, not going to be taking a very flattering account of the Australian's view of the world when he goes back to London. He's involved in a dispute on day one of the English tour and is involved in a couple of other disputes after that. Uh, And checking back with the FA to see if about uh, to look at his uh, tour report, the official uh, response is that there is no tour report. Mr. Lewis gave his account of the tour verbally. So there's no paper trail to find out what it is that he said to his uh, his masters back in London, but I think we could reasonably presume it wasn't flattering. Yeah, you get the
0: sense it wasn't too nice, <laughs> based on his comments uh, that you outlined otherwise in, in Australian newspapers as well. Yeah.
1: No, he wasn't a very popular guy, and he wasn't. Um, he was. He was a respected man. He was a founder and original player of Blackburn Rovers, way way back, and was uh, an administrator and known as the Prince of referees. He was. Uh, he was uh, a, a fantastic character in that regard, but he's. It, the image that comes through to me is one of a man who's a stickler for the rules and he regards himself as operating at a kind of uh, superior moral level, um, and he rubs up people the wrong way, even from other sports. Uh, he, there was a, a bit of a scandal uh, with, the Aust- with the English cricket team who were unsuccessful on the Tour of Australia, and he gratuitously dropped uh, the observation that perhaps if they'd been teetotalers, like he was, uh, they might have been in a better position to win the matches. Now, to 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 link some kind of errant behaviour with their failure to win matches on the basis of really no no evidence at all uh, was regarded as uh, insulting and uh, not to
0: be accepted. There was also a, a significant problem with. Interstate rivalry. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what was going on um, in this kind of interstate relation in, in Australian soccer or football.
1: I think the uh, tensions are both uh, at playing levels and also at a political level. On the playing uh, level, the generation of um, money through the gate because of uh, big fixtures and successful teams. Uh, New South Wales is always the most significant uh, state and becomes even more so in the 20s and 30s. So that playing standards in New South Wales are far superior to most of the other states. Uh, Occasionally, uh, Queensland and and, uh, even Victoria uh, are competitive, but really uh, that's kind of uh, isolated occasions. So playing talent uh, leads to this kind of... um, Semi-professional league starting in New South Wales in 1928. Uh, very successful within its own terms, uh, but it means that New South that other states just can't compete with New South Wales anymore. So there's a tension at a playing level. Popular uh, opinion in New South Wales is that the national team could really be picked from New South Wales teams, and uh, do the other states even have individual players that are worthy of attention? This is the kind of conceit which gains ground in New South Wales. On a political level, New South Wales believes that since it's generating the revenue, since it's generating the players, it's got everything at a higher standard than everybody else, uh, why should it not have control? So that the Federalist view about all of the states being represented uh, in the national body is contested in New South Wales. They don't believe that, say, Tasmania should have the same status as New South Wales. Why why should it? So far as the economy of touring teams is concerned, uh, the national nature of uh, tour approval means that the states, the national committee at least, um, the embodiment of the states, has to approve a tour proposal. And they're obviously much more likely to approve a tour proposal if they get a slice of the cake too, that a touring team comes to play in South Australia or Western Australia or, or whatever it might be. But the money through the gate, which pays for the whole enterprise, is really only generated in a, a handful of centres. Sydney will always make money. Newcastle under Hunter Valley will make money. Wollongong probably will make money. Brisbane Will most likely make money, and Ipswich and uh, the, uh, the that area to the southwest uh, will be a pretty decent bet as well. But an equally decent bet is that pretty well all of the other centres are going to lose money. So there's a kind of cross subsidy has to operate for a touring team to come to Australia at all, and teams become less interested in coming to Australia because. You know, it's a really big country, and getting around and playing games in all these <laughs> states means that you're going to have to come here for months—like a couple of months, literally. Uh, and getting around Australia is not a simple proposition anymore. You know, it's going to take—it takes a, it takes a 24 hours to get a train from Sydney to Melbourne. That's the busiest route in the country. Um, Getting around to other places is much more difficult. The quality of accommodation and travel is sometimes criticised by touring teams. So it's not all that comfortable a place to visit. Uh, these kinds of tensions play into who should be responsible for what. Uh, the domestic tensions lead to a major break between the years 1928, 1931, uh, and there's a new administration in 1931, and after that, uh, New South Wales uh, has you know, a, a good standard of play. The quality of opposition that comes to Australia diminishes. The there is no particular strategy about how to engage the rest of the world, other than you know uh, the kind of cargo cult mentality about the uh, benefits that will come from. The, the great gods of Britain coming to Australia. Uh, and the one individual with an internationalist outlook, and we should never forget this guy, is uh, Ernest Lukman. He is the only person who's, who's had a strategy which includes uh, non-British elements. He leaves the game because he's lost his job. He lost his job because he took an Australian team to Dutch East Indies and got fired for, for leaving work. Um, when he, uh, he assumed that he was going to get leave from his position with the Australian Army. He didn't get it. He was only told the day before the team was uh, getting on the boat to go to Java. Uh, so he had to make a very quick decision about whether to stick with his team or to stick with his job. He chose the team. He lost his job. Uh, and he ended up dropping out of the Australian uh, setup. But in the first 10 years of the Australian national team he was involved in every game in one capacity or another as a journalist as a trainer as a team selector as a tour manager as the secretary of the national association as the person who contacted foreign associations and maintained those contacts in the first 10 years of australia's international life
0: yeah so this might be a good time to turn since you mentioned the tour in java to these surprising links that you discovered um with Australia and and, and Asia, I, I I wasn't surprised so much to, to read about the tours. Uh, uh, although I was surprised by their extent, but it, I wonder if you can tell yes. us a little bit more about all these connections that you discovered and how these tours eventually um, came about, and and what were their goals of these tours?
1: Uh, you mean the Australian tours to Asia? The the, yes, the first? Yes, yeah. Yes, in their in their,
0: in their in their connections with Asian teams, even before they they'd gone to Asia
1: themselves. Well, uh, Lukeman was a great internationalist, uh, and uh, before I talk about the uh, East Indies experiences, it's worth recalling that he, as early as 1924, had written the application for Australia to join FIFA independently of uh, of uh, Britain. In 1926, he formulated a plan for an Australian world tour, which if it had happened, would have been the first uh, world tour by any national team anywhere in the world, Uh, and had a plan to take Australia to the Olympic Games in Amsterdam in 1928. That was also scuppered for a a variety of reasons. But coming directly to the East Indies question, uh, there was, I think, well, the first uh, link that I've discovered uh, at any rate is an invitation from the East Indies uh, football authorities in Jakarta in about 1921 from memory, well, inviting Australia to send a team. Now, uh, Australia had not considered any of this prior to these years and uh, East Indies just did not have any kind of profile within Australia in a football context anyway. Uh, A cordial relationship, I think it's fair to say, developed by cable, by letter, uh, over the years. Uh, Several invitations were received. Australia did consider them. Uh, If you go back to the newspapers of the day, it's part of uh, a number of destinations that are cited as potential uh, venues for Australian tours, but uh, nobody acted on them. By the time 1928 comes around and there's a major schism domestically, as we've already referred to, so that the New New South Wales State League has formed. Uh, Most of the best players have gone to play for State League sides. The State League are saying that they will not release their players for international matches. The National Association is still keen to show that it has this kind of international status, that it has uh, a ruling body status. They finally do agree to go on a tour to Dutch East Indies. They select a squad which is pretty good, all things considered. Uh, nobody would say that it's the best squad available from all of Australia's players for the reasons I've already mentioned. But by, by no means is it uh, a poor team. It's, it's not a bad side at all. They go to Dutch East Indies for a tour which has uh, got 20-odd games. It's a major, major tour. The promoter... Uh, has arranged tours all over the country, including four matches in Jakarta, which he assumes will be among the best money-spinning matches on the tour and is fundamental to his economy of making that tour work. An internal dispute in Java means those games get cancelled. Uh, Australia goes off to play a couple of games in Singapore, comes back to Java, uh, and plays more matches in uh, the second city of the country, being Surabaya, uh, diminishing returns there, though. Um, this, you know, Football fans have already seen Australia play four or five times, and to see them play another two or three games is uh, maybe not as attractive a proposition as it might have been. The crowds drop off a bit. For all of that, the crowds are pretty good. Uh, Australia has uh, a good tour. They win the majority of the matches comfortably, uh, uh, the majority of the matches, although they play some very decent opposition. Uh, the tour itself is, is a success. The promoter is reported in Australia to have gone broke. Um, I think it's likely that he lost money on the tour, but he certainly didn't get bankrupt. So at least the evidence doesn't support that. Uh, so he may have had his own problems with the tour, but as a playing experience, it was really good. Australia played uh, a representative team of the Dutch East Indies, which is not seen as a full international match, but uh, is pretty close to it. Uh, they also played against the first ever uh, Singapore selection uh, it went on their on their little trip to Singapore. They also played against a Malay selection. Again, in modern terms, you can't see these as being national. Uh, national matches, national team matches. But this is probably the first time a team purporting to represent Malay football has taken the field. It's the first time Singapore has put a team on the field just to be called Singapore. Uh, So Australia's um, journey has been the catalyst to the establishment of representative teams for three other countries. So that's uh, no small achievement in itself either. So they come home, it's caused – It's They've got no capital. This is a big part of the problem in Australia. They've got no capital. But they've managed to have a successful international tour at no cost at all. The promoter bears all of the risk. The promoter has paid Australia a fee to appear, which covers their accommodation, uh, which is not shabby, by the way. One of the, um, the Saki's family uh, is one of the sponsors of the tour. So they get to stay in the Hotel Orania in uh, Surabaya, which is a fantastic building. Uh, they get to stay at the Raffles Hotel when they're in Singapore because these are these yeah, are I, Sar- these are Saki's uh, family establishments. So this is you know they're, they're not at the Backpackers hostel, Pete. Let me let me assure you, they're doing okay here. Um, <laughs>
0: yes, I, I saw the Raffles, and I said, hey, "This is a this is a nice stage got.
1: <laughs> Not not bad. I'd find an excuse to have a third game, but yeah. Uh, yeah, they had a great successful tour. They came home, and it's not much more than twelve months later that new promoters in Dutch East Indies are firing off new cables to Australia to say, hey, how about, uh, how about a second tour?
0: And when they were playing there, they were playing against um, some really top players. I was, I was quite surprised, but I thought it was very interesting to read about this, um, you know, trans, the, the movement, the mobility of players, especially from the Dutch East Indies to, yeah. to Europe and back. Can you tell us a little bit about some of their, their opposition?
1: Well, as I was uh, uh, alluding to earlier, the relationship between the Dutch parent country, if I can put it that way, with its colony in the East Indies was far, far more productive than Australia ever had with the English FA and its uh, its agencies. So that um, lots of Dutch players came to play in the East Indies. Now, there's a very important reason here that there is no professional football in uh, Calvinist Holland. Uh, this is uh, frowned upon. So there's no financial uh, imperative for players to remain forever in Holland. And the way that the colonial life worked was that uh, people frequently did tours of duty, if you like, in the East Indies as civil servants or in the military or in commerce, uh, and that was a standard thing that uh, young men might might do. And that includes footballers. So there were literally, I think, in excess of 20 uh, Dutch international players who came and played part of their careers in the East Indies. The most prominent of them is Beppe Backhaus, who is a young star in Holland, already in the national team at the age of about 19, uh, and clearly has a really big future. But after a few games playing for the Netherlands, he accepts a job with uh, an oil company, which is uh, one of the precursors of what we now know as Royal Dutch Shell, and he comes to play in Surabaya. So he's got a job with an oil company. He plays in this kind of corporate competition, uh, and it's likely that there's been some remuneration for that, I wouldn't uh, wonder. He He also plays for a local club side, in Surabaya and importantly he also plays for the Surabaya district selection which goes off to play as other district selections do in the national championship he plays in the East Indies national championship winning team for Surabaya he is a top top player and at the end of his three-year career in the uh, Dutch East Indies he goes back to Holland He's immediately drafted back into the Dutch national team and is selected as its centre forward to go to the 1934 World Cup in Italy. So we're not talking about some old guy who's having a little kick around at the end of his career to, you know, just stretch it out a little bit because it's fun to play. We're talking about a, a significant European international at the top of his game going to play in the Dutch East Indies. Uh, in 1931, when the Australians go on their second tour to the country, they play two matches against teams with backhouse in it, and he scores in both of them. <laughs> the Australians didn't know who he was. They make no remarks on the uh, the status of the man that they're playing against. They probably don't know, or if they do know, they don't think it's significant enough to even remark on. Uh, certainly the press make no mention of his uh, status. Um, but that's the kind of player you're going to bump into. It's, he's, it's not isolated. There's, there's a lot of Dutch players like that. And the great Asian star of the pre-war era, Lee White Tong, who, who has played in Australia on two tours at this point, he, plays, uh, he spends a season playing club football in the East Indies as well for a, a Chinese-backed, Chinese-community-backed uh, team in Surabaya. He also plays for the Surabaya selection in a, a national championship. He also spends a bit of time playing in Jakarta. So this is this vibrant scene in Dutch East Indies where there is a very successful, commercially successful touring football culture, uh, which is also providing um, playing experiences in the way that uh, is done on a, a much bigger financial status now, of course, of players with international status coming to play football in your country uh there is an account by one of the uh dutch east indies stars of the period eddie Ming, which i saw in a dutch uh, online publication uh, which had printed a feature on the occasion of his 100th birthday where he uh, recalls where he recalls that um you could make a decent bit of pocket money uh in dutch east indies you know you everybody knows you know there's we're a long way from home here. Nobody really sees that you might get uh, a sum of money uh, in, the, in the old-fashioned way of boot money. You, know, you go into the dressing room and there's money in your boot already. Um, so I, I don't know where it came from. I'm the player, and you're the guy who did it because you're the manager of the team, but you've got some plausible deniability here. Um, this magical process is something that everybody's pretty happy about. Uh, so that you could actually make more money playing football in East Indies than you could in Holland.
0: Yeah, the I, the, the whole um, the whole culture of football that you're describing in in East Asia was was a little bit surprise, was a little bit surprising to me. One, I I would love to hear more about the this Chinese tour of Australia. I think that that was just kind of fascinating. And one of these um, one of these moments where you're like. I, Okay. I, I mean I, I understood the that the Nationalist Project was incorporating sports as an important part of their of their nation building yeah. exercise. But I didn't realize that they were traveling um traveling to Australia and I'd love to know more about how they were understanding their experiences and how Australians were viewing um these Chinese footballers. What you know, yeah, what was their it's, experience.
1: It's a multi-leveled kind of um experience here because Football was uh, became to be heavily identified with uh, notions of uh, modernity of uh, you know, Western ideas about sport. Chinese culture hadn't had much of a an experience of sport being a collective a, a, a team effort. These were all usually individual efforts. So the whole notion of team sport was seen as a bit Western. But uh, the uh, Modernists, if you like, of Chinese nationalism, and they're uh, heavily identified with the Chinese Nationalist Party, with Kuomintang, um, uh, are at the forefront of football development. So when the uh, international competitions like the East Asian Games, people don't generally even recognise that there was a regional championship which operated for twenty years in in uh, involving finally four countries: China, Japan, Philippines, and uh, the East Indies. Um, this, this had all started been started by basically uh, American missionaries from the YMCA. They went to East Asia and promoted uh, Western sport and uh, correct uh, Christian uh, ideas about uh, masculinity and, and good conduct and, and fair sporting contests. And this was embraced by people in several countries and in, in many, many sports. Uh, and football was was one of them. The Australians, they, the, the, the Chinese team that originally came to Australia came under you know, quite bizarre circumstances where a, an Australian-born New Zealand journalist uh, called Harry Millard um, went to China. He, he, he'd served in the First World War with a uh, New Zealand unit which had many... Um, uh, Chinese laborers under its direction. People, again, may not be familiar with the fact that it was well over 100,000 Chinese laborers uh, worked behind the lines in Europe in the First World War. They were not a, a, a one of the countries involved in combat, but they were behind the lines doing all sorts of stuff. Millard thought they looked like great athletes. Uh, they, the amount of uh, heavy physical work that they got through, he was amazed by he used to tell people when he went back to New Zealand at the end of the war that uh, these were great athletes and we should be making contact with them. And when a, a rugby league tour to Australia and New Zealand fell through in the early 20s, he came up with this idea and managed to find financial investors for the idea of going to China, recruiting these incredible athletes, teaching them something about playing rugby league, bringing them to Australia or New Zealand, touring them around the place, and we'll clean up at the box office and we're all going to be really, really happy. Now, people backed the idea. There's a party of three went off to China to recruit these people. Um, Of course, when they got there, they found nobody being even slightly interested in rugby. (laughs) But he did find that there was a lot of football being played and it seemed to be pretty good. Uh, The two rugby guys uh, came home. Uh, Millard stuck around, made some interesting contacts and went off to Japan at at the invitation of some of the football crowd in China. And he went to the East Asian Games in Osaka in 1923 and he saw the football tournament, which was won by the Chinese team. Uh, And he started to send cables back to uh, eventually to Sydney to say, would you guys be interested in Uh, a Chinese football team touring Australia uh, because, you know, they're pretty good and you might like them. In Sydney, they're thinking, well, you know, this guy has got nothing to do with football. He might not know a good football from from, anybody on the street. You know, how can we trust him? Um, But anyway, cut a very long story short, they eventually agree. The Chinese team comes to Australia. It is a good team. Uh, and on the f- first day of the tour, they played the Sydney Showground against a New South Wales selection. The official crowd has given us forty-seven thousand, um, and but nobody really knows how many. The police, I think, ended up opening the gates, or you know, that they, that actually tried to close the gates, but people just started to clamber over the fences, so they thought, I oh, give up on the idea. So who knows how many people were there? But at least forty-seven thousand. Cracker of a game, um, and. A lot of goals scored. Everybody loved it. Uh, They played against Australia the next week, and I think there's another 30000 there for that one. They made enough money in those first two weekends to cover the entire cost of the Chinese tour, which is very, very extensive. They went all over the place. Um, So it's bizarre that an attempt to recruit a rugby league team to tour New Zealand ended up being a soccer team to come to Australia. And the whole Australian-Asian experience arising from that, that's the, that's the roots of that one. But it proved many things. It proved that Asian people could be taken seriously as athletes, and this is this is the, the sort of racist tropes of the day uh, portrayed Chinese people as certainly not being physically competitive with uh, European Australians, but this was undeniable after the tour. Um, So it proved that there were good Asian athletes. It also proved that there was a commercial-sized audience in Australia for football matches if the opposition was good enough. Uh, These were important lessons which uh, carried through for many years afterwards. But Lee Wai Tong was the great star of that touring team. He was only 17 when he came here. He'd already been a star of that tournament in Osaka that I mentioned, and he was a standout on the Australian tour. Everybody could see what a star he was. And he ended up having an incredible career where he toured Australia again in 1927 with another Chinese team. But he was the great star of uh, Asian football. After the war, he became the, uh, well, he, he was the person more than anybody else who created the Asian Football Confederation in the early 50s. He became the uh, vice president of FIFA in the course of his career. Uh, he always had a soft spot for Australia and wanted Australia to become a member of the Asian Football Confederation as early as the 1950s, but that uh, didn't happen for a variety of reasons, um, but an amazing character. His son also played for China in Australia. Uh, he came here as well, uh, Wei Tong, that is, as, as a coach in the 1950s. He's, he's an astonishing uh, a career. Um, but it, it, his international status began in that year when he came to Australia.
0: Yeah, uh, th- that brings up another missed opportunity, or maybe maybe it was never a real opportunity. But your your book points out just how vibrant um, Far East Asian football was before the the rise of the uh, Asian Football Confederation, and that's something that I, I had heard about but i hadn't really realized the Hmm. full extent of um and it and it did seem at moment at at times like oh if only australia could have competed in this tournament (laughs) yeah
1: yeah well it's uh from this distance now you shrug your shoulders but as i said earlier you know we can all be uh, experts in retrospect um that that wasn't the thinking of the day uh but yes if you look at Let's say the end of the 1920s, in my opinion, and this is a, a, a degree of speculation here because it's no objective test that we could ever apply to, to make sure that we're getting this right, but uh, I think it's reasonable to guess on the evidence of uh, what uh, results we do have, that at the end of the 1920s, Australia is probably the preeminent football country in East Asia-Pacific. Uh, But by the end of the 1930s, it's just about impossible to say because Australia's uh, British course in the international world means it hasn't engaged in competitive matches on the international stage. However, the teams that we had some association with, China and East Indies, uh, put that together with Japan that we had no direct contact with. um, We can see what the difference was. Both China and Japan went to play in the Olympic Games in 1936 in Berlin. Uh, the football captains of both China and Japan were the flag bearers into, you know, Hitler's Olympic stadium. Uh, interesting, uh, interesting development there too. Japan became the first Asian country to defeat uh, a European country in an international match. They beat they beat uh, Sweden two nil. Um, the uh, Chinese side uh, had the misfortune to be drawn against uh, Great Britain for its one, it as a knockout tournament back in those days, for its uh, one match. They uh, were nil-nil with Great Britain until the final half hour and conceded two goals and lost 2 nil. Uh, and in 1938, the Dutch East Indies went to the Olympic Games in France. You know, this other course onto the international stage, as followed by our friends in Asia, was clearly a far, far more productive uh, course onto the world stage than that one, which was followed by Australia. Just as a a little aside with the 1938 games, um, uh, East Indies, when they got there, had the misfortune, I suppose, to be drawn against the pre-tournament favourites, which was Hungary. They ended up being beaten 6-0 by, you know, a, a, a starring uh, Hungarian side who didn't go on to win the tournament, however. But uh, there's a famous picture of the two captains, Georgi Sarossi, uh one of the great players of the 1930s, walking onto the field with uh, the East Indies captain, Ahmad Navier, in his spectacles. Uh, he wore them on the field too. Um, Ahmad uh, that's his that's his first international match. Uh, being playing against Hungary at the World Cup, but it's not the first national team that he's ever played against. When the Australians went to East Indies in 1931, uh, Navir played for the Surabaya selection against Australia. So he has played a national team before. That team was Australia. So it's a little interesting Australian connection to uh, a great hero of uh, Asian football, the first. Man from an Asian country ever to walk onto the field in a world cup match uh made his debut against australia
0: yeah i like i say i, I was just fascinated by all of the Asian connections um especially uh the connections with uh Lee Wait Tong um but it seem it seems like many of the major figures in in Asian football um at some point in time made contact with with Australia, and it does make you think about, um, you know, how belatedly Australia seemed to have come into its role as a –
1: Well, I think in the terms of the day, it's easy to understand, but what irritates me now is that it's still not really recognized. Right. You know, when we talk about joining Asia, for instance, the language that came about when Australia did join the Asian Football Confederation, what is it now, about 15 years ago, um, it kind of irritates me because Australia's roots are in Asia and always have been. There's a little stat that I've, that I've discovered. If you go back for the last uh, 10 completed uh, years of international matches played by the Australian men's team, uh, the and this is a time when Australia is a member of the AFC, it plays all of its uh, qualifying matches for international tournaments, through uh, Asian groups, of course, the proportion of matches that Australia plays played in, in the last 10 years uh, against Asian opposition is about 62%. It's a bit over 60%. If you go back to the first 10 years, starting with uh, a game in New Zealand in 1922 and finishing with a game in Makassar, um, the modern Indonesian state of Sulawesi, uh, in 1931, you'll find that it's just under. 60%. You know, it's not as if uh, we've, we've suddenly discovered that uh, Asia is this, uh, this place that people talk the about. Oh, I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's just landmassed Australia. It's where we have always played our international football. You know, it's still about 60% of the matches. So I don't, uh, it irritates me that it doesn't get recognized even now. And, you know, you could make a broader complaint, or at least I'm uh, frequently making (laughs) this complaint, that even after 15 years in the uh, Asian Football Confederation, there's still so little presence of Asian football in Australian consciousness. You know, there's no um, real discussion about Asian football taking place in most media. There are some very important exceptions here and a lot of players and coaches particularly can talk directly about their own experiences of playing and coaching in Asia. Um, That's uh, not to be critical of anybody there but on TV I can turn on the TV and watch football matches. I can't think of a single Asian face that appears on my screen to tell me anything about Asian football or Australia and Asian football relations or anything. It's just, it's just not there. So we don't get Asian opinion in Australia either. Uh, and it's, uh, again, a, a, a bit of an irrescence. Um it's, it's a problem in Asia as well, by the way. The, there's, but it's more to do with post-colonial politics, it seems to me. So that in China, for instance, they're a little bit reluctant to recognise anything before 1949, before the revolution. Um, Lee Wai Tong, this amazing character, uh, is somebody who has led a nationalist cause, uh, led it all of his life, so that you know he was significant in the football scene in Hong Kong and in Taiwan after the revolution. Uh, when China was making political uh pushes, there's an
0: irony here, isn't there? Yeah.
1: <laughs> pushes to to claim exclusive use of the word China as a, as a national title, it was often Li Wai Tong who was on the other side of the table arguing a different case with FIFA. So there's a reluctance to give too much credit to Li Wai Tong. And even in um, Indonesia, you know, which had this big, vibrant scene, um, at, one, at one extreme there is still a kind of opinion which says, yeah, there's a lot of activity, but... Was that really an Indonesian story, or was it a Dutch colonial story which happened to be played out on an Indonesian stage? Um, I think it's a very very small minority opinion There's uh, much more nowadays of view that this most definitely was an Indonesian experience, and we need to reclaim it from the ownership of uh, the the colonists who who ran this the, the game then and reclaim it for ourselves well. Um, I encourage everyone
0: who wants to know more about Australia's, uh, Asian, uh, history in terms of its Asian football history to pick up this book, but also people who want to know more about the beginnings of football in Asia. I think it does, um, it does lengthen, uh, this history of football in Asia before the AFC, um, and before FIFA to show really kind of organic, um, organic bubbling of, of, of organizations and activities, um, in the interwar period and even, and even before. Um, so thank you Tra- Trevor for your, uh, fantastic book. Can I ask you one final question? What are you, what's, what's next for you?
1: <laughs> um, well, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Uh, I think I'm still interested in this period and I've just uh, recently returned from Indonesia where I met, uh, uh, Whole lot of really interesting people who are also interested in this uh, period with football. I'm uh, interested in doing a bit more work about that and to build up a, a much better relationship between um, football reporters and fans, as as well as uh, at the, the the formal level of associations and players uh, and seeing if we can build a bit more of a community where we acknowledge, you know, a shared history uh, gives meaning to both sides. So my immediate project, I think, is to uh, try to do a bit more work with the uh, my, my new friends in <laughs> Indonesia to see see what we can develop there uh, and, uh, and build just a better relationship because we, we shouldn't allow it to pass. This is a decade after all we've got coming up. The first Australian game was in 1922, so there's a lot of centenary events and there's just never going to be a better opportunity to uh, re-examine those events, to discuss their meaning and to see if we can use that as a bit of a launching pad for better relationships in the future. That sounds fantastic
0: and I'll be looking forward to reading and hearing more about it. Uh, thank you very much, Trevor Thompson. We've been here on the New Books Network, which is a New Books and Sports a channel on the New Books Network. We've been talking to Trevor Thompson, the author of Playing for Australia, the First Roos, Asia and World Football. Thank you very much for joining us, Trevor.
1: It's been
0: a pleasure. And thank you all for listening.